I'll take you out for Chinese food on Christmas Eve, just me and you. I'll show you how my people do a neon holiday. That was the lovely Living Sisters with their song Neon Chinese Christmas Eve, a song about Jews going out for Chinese. On Christmas Eve, they will be performing it live at the Kibitz Room at Cantor's Deli in Los Angeles on December 13th at our Catskills Kibitz Hanukkah Blowout, featuring the best in live entertainment. We've got comedian Moshe Kasher, comedian, writer, and director Michael Showalter, the Living Sisters, my co-host Jessica Chaffin, and me, Dan Crane, plus a world record involving pastrami and a dreidel game that's actually good. $5 of every ticket will go towards relief efforts in Puerto Rico, so get tickets now at our website, kibitzpod.com events. Also, I just want to say congrats to the winner of the second Kibitz Schwag giveaway. Her name is Grace Toy from Marlboro, New Jersey. In her email, Grace wrote, By the way, I'm not Jewish myself, but am PR chair volunteer of the Jewish Heritage Museum in Monmouth County, Freehold, New Jersey. Well, Grace, thanks for listening and for doing PR for the Jewish Heritage Museum. Now, maybe you could do some PR for us. Get the word out about the kibitz. Uh, Tell your friends. So, now on to the episode. Just a quick disclaimer before we begin, the views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the guests and do not reflect the opinions of the podcast or its sponsors. Also, the following podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners. Thanks. This normal reality uh, unzipped. Uh, back there were two beings that were um, receiving me. These beings knew me and they yeah. greeted me and they were they they felt disappointed in me. Like, what are you doing here? Oh, they were Jewish parents. You're not. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Was Moses tripping when he saw the burning bush? Are psychedelics the key to unlocking the mysteries behind Jewish texts? And did you hear the one about the rabbi who did LSD with Timothy Leary? Well, hello and welcome to The Kibitz, the podcast about Jewish ideas and culture. I'm Dan Crane. And I'm Jessica Chaffin. And this episode is about the secret history of Jews and drugs. All right. So let's talk drugs, Jessica. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This so, is, you're just going to trick me into talking about this on this do podcast. Do you believe in huh? drugs? Never, never running for office, am I? <laughs> um... What do you want to talk about, Dan? You're well, you from were Boulder. Saying, you must have a lot to say. So you They grow mushrooms. Did you there. say I'm from Boulder? Excuse me? Denver. Denver. I'm yeah. from Denver. Denver. It's a big difference. Sorry. <laughs> uh we were talking about how you thought Jews didn't drink. No, I they, didn't say that. I said that other people have a perception of Jews as not drinkers. And that they the drugs are accepted, but drinking is frowned upon. And I was trying to figure out with a friend of mine why that might be. And I to be honest, what do I know? Again, once again, I'm just talking and have no education to back this up. Sure. But I think that um, alcoholism, uh, sort of systemic alcoholism in a community can be very antisocial behavior. And I think was probably frowned upon in a smaller setting. Who knows? That can go for any community. But 
I think that the relationship that Jews have to drugs, Jew, the Jewish religion is a very questioning uh, religion, and I think it might have something to do with opening the doors of perception. Huh. I think you could be right. That when you really become a deeply, deeply scholarly Jew, it's all about Talmudic questions and discussing, you know, spinning the same idea around for thousands of years. Yeah. I, I think a little doobie, a little doobie doesn't <laughs> hurt. <laughs> a little... It's good. It's good shit. When you're running low on ideas, yeah. a nice a nice mushroom might help. Yeah. What do you think of this idea that uh, that Moses was was actually tripping when he saw the burning bush? Well, I hadn't heard that one before. Okay. Well, but it sounds a little bit like the the whole um, one of the one of the theories of the the fall of the Roman Empire was that there was a fungus growing on the wheat and that everybody went mad. So I suppose it's possible. I mean, anything is possible. But that, do we really want to cut God off at the knees like that? <laughs> like, burning a bush doesn't seem like a lot to ask. No. No. I mean, uh, right, as far as magic Parting powers Parting a sea. Whew. Oof, that's, Does that mean that everybody was on, everybody was on psychedelics? Just, I think just Moses saw the burning bush, right? Yeah, but the, what about the, de, the, the parting of the Red Sea? I don't know. Everybody walked through that. That's true. So maybe the matzah was... Funky, yeah. <laughs> Pass around some funky. rain. Pass me the funky matzo, bro. <laughs> Don't stop bogarting that funky matzo. <laughs> funky matzo. <laughs> oh, so apparently this there's a study that's being done at Johns Hopkins right now, which uh, I'm participating. In. Are you? Yeah. That's, that's why you're here. Yeah. Um, according. <laughs> Johns right now Hopkins. i'm in both places <laughs> that's why you're in <laughs> makes DC, sense to me in baltimore um <laughs> no there's a study being done at johns hopkins uh which according to the guardian they said uh scientists at johns hopkins university in baltimore have enlisted two dozen religious leaders from a wide range of denominations to participate in a study in which they will be given two powerful doses of psilocybin the active ingredient in magic mushrooms so I'm they're gonna like so impressed that you know how to say that what psilocybin yeah so, all right. So, in this episode, we have Rick Doblin, who's actually quite famous uh, in this world of uh, drugs. Uh, he's the founder and executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Sounds like a big excuse to do drugs. I know. Yeah. He's been doing it for a long time. An excerpt uh, from our friend Moshe Kasher's Comedy Central show, Problematic. And we have Rabbi David Ingber of New York's Renewal Movement Temple, Romemu. So get ready to turn on, tune in, and drop out, and prepare to expand your mind with this episode of <laughs> The, the Kibbits. Yeah. I'm Rick Doblin, and I... Started a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, back in 1986. And I'm trying to mainstream psychedelics. Well, and, and so what is MAPS? What's the function of MAPS? What does it do? Well, MAPS sponsors research and does uh, education, public education, also does some advocacy work, and also supports what's called the Zendo Project, which is psychedelic harm reduction services at Burning Man and festivals around the world. You had sort of a, a, um, ca a sort of epiphany, I guess, uh, related to your Jewishness and its connection to psychedelics. So yeah. what, what happened? Well, um, I'll just say that I have um, relatives that have been in Israel since 1904. 
and also uh, was born in, in the U.S., though, in 53. And so I was educated from a very young age about the Holocaust. And that, uh, you know, profoundly terrified me. And I thought that um, from a very early age, I started wondering how people could be so irrational and how could they, how could they be so crazy and how could they be willingly um, deluded and believe things that were not true. And so it just started me thinking about psychological factors um, as necessary for me to focus on for my survival. I kind of felt like I was um, multiple generations um, sort of created space for me to be able to focus on deeper levels of survival. So in my um, mother's side, um, great-grandparents came over from um, Russia in 1880, and then from my father's side, relatives came over from Poland to the U.S. around 1920. Um, and so you could say there were you know refugees who ended up making it good, and my great-grandfather was the classic rags-to-riches story, which was he actually had a rags business. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, a literal yeah. rags to Yeah, riches and turned story. it into a paper business and oh. all. And so it just was... Um, this idea of what am I going to do so that I'm not um, and others are not victimized in terms of the Holocaust. And then when I first started doing LSD, I thought this is stuff that gets deep down. And this, this is doing for me what my bar mitzvah was supposed to do, mm. but didn't. It wasn't really a life transforming rite of passage, my bar mitzvah, but LSD seemed to be that. Dublin had this vivid dream, a seemingly religious experience that he describes in great detail. There's this old man in, in the bed and he's dying and, and he's looking at me and he says, there was a time when I was um, almost killed, but I was miraculously saved and I knew I was saved for a purpose, but I never knew what the purpose was. And he said, now I know what the purpose is. And he looks at me, it's to tell you to become a psychedelic therapist and researcher. In the dream, the old man shows him how he nearly died in the Holocaust, but was saved so that he could tell him to be a psychedelic researcher. And so I think that's really the driving force for me is um, this fear that if we don't improve human mental health, there'll be more Holocausts and not just limited to the Jews, but the whole world. And now we do see, you know, global warming and nuclear arms race and, you know, all sorts of um potential risks. Yeah. So, so that that's sort of the Jewish connection on why I've, I've been so persevering. Because I always felt like, you know, I started MAPS in 1986, um, but I decided to do this in 1972. And I've always felt like no matter how hard it was, I've got it super easy compared to a lot of other people or compared right. to the Holocaust. Or, sure. I mean, do you think that there's a natural... <laughs> connection between psychedelics and Judaism or Jewish spirit spirituality or <laughs> well um, yeah I do um, let me tell you a funny story though um, there's a fellow Benny Shannon who was the head of uh, the Department of Psychology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and he got very he was a very cognitive psychology person but he started doing ayahuasca and he got very interested in ayahuasca and then he he wrote um, one of the definitive books about the varieties of experience that people have under ayahuasca. Um, and then later he published a paper that got widespread international media about how Moses, when he was in the Sinai and he saw the burning bush, that actually manna must have been something psychedelic. And therefore he must have been on a psychedelic when he saw the burning bush. So I was um, very impressed with this paper and I um, showed it to my father, who's kind of a um, 
sort of left-wing um, socialist sort of, you know, Jewish liberal, but kind of skeptical. And so I said, Dad, what do you think about this now? You know, look, looks like Moses was on drugs. And he said, well, first off, to believe that, you have to believe there was a Moses. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. So I, I come from that kind of skeptical tradition, but I do think that when I just was in spot um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, with the home of the Kabbalah and all. So I think that um, non-ordinary states of consciousness have a role within Judaism. And I think that psychedelics um, can be part of that. And there's, um, I think, uh, here's another little story. So one time I was in Jerusalem. This was kind of a, um, you know, we, we've had multiple conferences in Israel um, to try to educate the anti-drug authority and the various people about MDMA. So um, this was a conference that was right around the time of Purim. And there was an all-night rave at... Um, in Jerusalem that was actually in a parking garage right next to the Israeli Supreme Court. And there was an art school in Jerusalem that was handling the decorations and all. And so uh, some friends and I took MDMA and we're at this rave all night. And then in the morning, I went to the old city around sunrise to me near the wall and um, to go there. And there was these two um, sort of Hasidic kids that were up all night also, but drinking. So the main drug that we know of in Jewish tradition is alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, certain times, like at Purim, you're supposed to get drunk. But they were kind of loud and um, sloppy, I guess, trying to get into Classic this. Classic drunks, yeah. Yeah. And so, and my friend and I were just kind of chill after this all night of MDMA. And we we're both going to the wall, to the Western Wall. And I just felt like I'm so glad that I'm sort of a Jew in the modern age where I have the psychedelics more available to me. So, basically, I think that Judaism would be enhanced if we would be moving more from alcohol to psychedelics. Yeah. But I do think that there is this tradition within Judaism of non-ordinary states of consciousness, however they're triggered. There's not that much of a Jewish meditative practice, but but there's a lot of the Kabbalistic approaches that do have um, dabble with other kinds of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And what I mean, just to go back to that story about the the burning bush and Moses, because <laughs> I'd, I'd heard that story too. Um, <laughs> I think in terms of whether you know manna is actually you know mushrooms growing from the ground, you know that gets you high, or who who knows? There's um, it's possible that there was some kind of drug involved, and then it turns into this is you know from God making it happen instead of something that was triggered by a plant, or, right? Right. You know, yeah, I think that's the, that's that. I mean, if it's, people could just see your facial expression, yeah. you know, it's like, the, the, I think the important point is that these are stories. Yeah. But what's the behavior? And are you, you know, tikkun alam? Are you sure. acting in a compassionate way? Yeah. Or, so for me, it's not so much was Judaism in the past enriched by psychedelics, but Judaism today, my Judaism has been enriched by psychedelics. And I've yeah. seen that with other people. And I, I wonder a lot about how do we turn these um, Orthodox Jews that are very rigid fundamentalists into, um, in general, Christian fundamentalists, Jewish fundamentalists, Muslim fundamentalists. Even atheist fundamentalists, atheists, too. Yeah. How, <laughs> how, how do we, you know, spiritualize them yeah. and get them to be less rigid? And so there are some um, Orthodox Jews in Israel who I know are experimenting with, with LSD, 
and MDMA. And so I, I guess I'd say a modern case can be made for the beneficial use of psychedelics within Jewish tradition. And, and I'd like to go back to Shlomo Karlbach and Rabbi Zalman Schachter. So I never met Shlomo Karlbach, and I don't know that he ever did psychedelics, but Zalman Schachter, who started sort of the Jewish revival movement, and um, I got to be friends with him, and he actually acknowledged and has written about doing LSD with Timothy Leary. He's done MDMA. He compared MDMA to the Sabbath. Hmm. And so I think how, that, Like how so? Well, he said uh, the Sabbath is a delight. MDMA is a delight. It's like a time of rest, a time of reflection, a time hmm. out of your normal processing into something deeper. And it's that sense of rest, that sense of um, open-heartedness right. that MDMA he compared to the Sabbath. So that, that's for me more of the issue is what do we do to um, sort of enliven Judaism and to take the rough edges off of fundamentalists and help them be more, you know, what, why should they be blocking you know, women from praying at the Western Wall. Or, right. And do you think that if they just, everybody just took a little MDMA they'd, or LSD, well, well, they would sort of open up? I mean, because that is... Well, I think that it's, um, I think one of the fundamental problems of our drug policy, of prohibition, all is that we invest certain properties in the drug. These are good drugs, these are bad drugs, and it's really about the relationship mm. that we have with these drugs that determines whether they're beneficial or harmful. So I don't think that if we just give everybody MDMA, that the, the solution is not in the drug, but if we create contexts that are supportive, and this is the same is true for our therapy work with mm. psychedelics, that it, the drug is not the treatment, it's the drug-assisted psychotherapy. But I do think that if, um, you know, if we were reduced to just giving those people MDMA, that that would probably be, they'd probably be better off for it, most of them. Yeah. And I think the key point to be made here is that it's not about the mystical experience as catalyzed by psychedelics, but it's the mystical experience, however you come to it. And so I just think most people come to it through psychedelics. It's easier, more reliable. It's been used for thousands of years, but it's about that experience. Um, so again, it's not so much psychedelics, but it's the experiences that psychedelics catalyze are more direct, primary, spiritual, mystical experiences, and that those are what religion is based on. And after a while, religion gets rigid and focused on the book. And the so may, maybe the manna was psychedelic. You know, maybe there was kind of an early plant-based um, experience. We we know that when we talk about Western culture. For thousands of years, it goes back to the Greeks, and the Greeks had um, the longest surviving mystery ceremony ever for about 2,000 years, from around 1600 BC to 396 AD, and it was the Eleusinian Mysteries. And everybody we think of, Pythagoras, you know, all of the, the Greek uh, heroes in a way that we think of that contributed to Western thought participated in these rituals. And the rituals involved a drink called Kikion that they drank about three and a half hours, four hours before they were on a walk. It was a long walk and they drank it at a certain point and then they ended up at Eleusis. And it looks now like that was a psychedelic potion. And the time it took to walk from where they drank it to uh, the temple of Eleusis was about the time for them to peek to on the drug. Kick in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that there is this origins in Western culture. And then the reason it was wiped out in 396 was by the Catholic Church. Right. And so they wanted, you know, no competition for 
you know, and they wanted the priestly class to be in between you and God. And that's one of the beauties of Judaism is there's supposedly, you know, nobody between you and God. You said that um, psychedelics have thousands of years of use as as a religious in a religious context. Yeah, yeah. Is that the Greek thing you were talking about, or is no, there, no, or is, no, there no, no. is that a Jewish context? Oh as well? no, no, I wasn't um, so much meaning that. Um, that's like the if you look at the use of, um, I mean, the Greeks for sure. Yeah, but also the uh, use of peyote by the Huichol Indians and others in Mexico ways back. The use of psychedelic mushrooms in Mexico goes way back. I think that there has been a recognition um, throughout the generations that um, that psychedelics have this capacity to um, open people up, but also to, in certain ways, to um, bind people together and to create these experiences of connection that people feel and then take into their daily lives. Yeah. So it's been kind of this mixture of um, psychedelics sort of been for um, healing and spirituality. Kind of those have kind of sometimes been mixed up together. But, mm-hmm. but the psychedelics do go back thousands of years. And then the Greeks take it back even further, thousands mm-hmm. of years back. Yeah. Well, I feel like I could ask you, I have a million questions that <laughs> probably don't relate to this podcast. So I will, <laughs> will not uh, get into all that. All right, but, um, well, thanks again for yeah, uh, great. We come. Today on Problematic, we're discussing the only thing that's going to help us get through the next four years, psychedelic drugs. Our friend comedian Moshe Kasher has a brilliant and hilarious show on Comedy Central called Problematic. One recent episode was devoted to psychedelics. Here's an excerpt. The first time I dropped acid, I was 13 years old. But the second time I dropped acid, I was 13 years old. (laughs) But the 27th time, I took a lot of acid when I was 13. In fact, the theme of my bar mitzvah was staring at my own hands. Now, it's not a great idea to take mind-expanding drugs at the age when you don't have much of a mind upon which to expand. So what are psychedelics? Are they a crazy party drug that'll fry your brain through a spell cast by a melting squirrel? Or are they a deep medicine that will heal your trauma through a gentle conversation with a melting squirrel? (laughs) This is problematic. Speaking of miracles, what is it that you get out of psychedelics that you couldn't get sober Moshe is talking to comedian and more than occasional drug dabbler Pete Holmes. As someone that was raised religious, I knew there was a yearning to know the deeper secrets of the universe. But until I took mushrooms, I didn't really know what all the buzz was about. Um, but you know, I, I take so them. Did be- you see? Do you feel like you saw God, or you communed with a greater power? It's not that I saw him; it's that I soak inside of him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh. Okay. So wait, wait. If I get this right, you God? No, no, no. I rested in the hammock of his nuts. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, that, that's a fine joke, and I applaud you for laughing. But the truth is, 
Taking psychedelics removes the idea of God somewhere else, someone else doing something else. You don't know these things on mushrooms, you feel them. And in a world, I think we can all agree, where people are trying to rob you of your basic wonder and your joy in the world, it's nice to take a substance that forces you into the, into the present and, and, and returns you to a state of wonder. For me, it's different than everybody's perspective here because I went to rehab when I was 15 and I've been sober ever since then. And all I have in terms of my memory bank when it comes to psychedelics is this memory of being a 13-year-old busting my mind wide open. There's a lot of trauma there. When I think about psychedelics, I feel like I remember them as a positive force in Despite my life. Despite having not done drugs since he was 15, his friend Pete thinks it might be good for him to try hallucinogenics again. But Moshe, I don't, I think you should do what you want to do. I don't think they're in the same category, but at the same time, if you never did them again, that would be fine. Okay, Rick, if I ever decide that I never want to walk through the doors of perception. Here, Moshe is speaking to our previous guest, Rick Doblin. <laughs> um, yes. I, All right. I, <laughs> 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 wow, Dan, do you think that offer stands for us too? Uh, and uh, for all listeners of the Kibitz podcast, I think Rick Doblin will hold anyone's hand if they want to. If they want to do some drugs and uh, you know walk into oblivion, Rick Doblin is your man. <laughs> I just had a baby and I'm kind of an old guy and everybody wishes that they could be less old and more hip. Well, I have to tell you, Jess, there is a new podcast that is trying to find out how to do just that. This is the the podcast for you, Dan. I'm it telling is. Because I, I know I know that you're very concerned about staying youthful, especially well, now that you've moved into a new generation with your bebe. Yeah. Um, and this is a fantastic show. Hosts Emily Foster and Deanna Chang, who are two of the most uh, charming gals around, are reaching out to America's youth to figure out how to stay young on this great show called How to Be Less Old. So uh, reaching out make... to America's youth, you mean like uh, like Roy Moore kind of style? Or? No, like like stalking, like stalking them on the internet to find out what they're doing. And then they okay. have old people on like me, Casey Wilson, Jason Mantzoukas, Chris D'Elia. We come on and we talk about like we you know it's like anthropological almost we talk about like what on earth are these young people doing and can we relate to it and right. i have to tell you my episode was the subject of my episode um which is out this week is deeply deeply upsetting mukbang it is mukbang. A, Kore a korean um phenomenon where women sit and overeat and talk to you like they're your best friend. And it is what? on so many levels, the most disturbing thing you've ever seen. And I'm sure they'll have links up on their, uh, on their page. So you can listen to how to be this less old wherever podcasts are found, but mostly at Stitcher um, and Apple podcasts and on Earwolf. How to be less old. I highly, highly recommend. Named by Newsweek as one of 2013's top 50 most influential rabbis in the United States, as well as by the forward as one of the 50 most newsworthy and notable Jews in America, Rabbi David Ingbert promotes a renewed Jewish mysticism that integrates meditative mindfulness and physical awareness into mainstream postmodern Judaism.
My name is David Ingber, and I'm uh, I'm a rabbi here in New York City. Um, also a founder of a community and a spiritual, I guess, leader in the Jewish world. Um, started a community called Rom Mimu, Rom Mimu, which means to elevate or to evolve, to progress, to go, to get high. <laughs> Literally, to go. Ram means to go up uh, in biblical Hebrew. So Rom Mimu means let's go high. Let's elevate, and um, and I am a longtime practitioner of meditation and yoga, and kind of seek to blend ecstatic, devotional, Hasidic practice in a postmodern milieu, deeply ecumenical, drawing from many different religious and spiritual traditions, in order to kind of create a center for wisdom and human flourishing. Wow, and so you studied under uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalami, who I guess sort of famously dropped acid with Timothy Leary and became this, the leader of the, the renewal movement, which has been said emerged as the psychedelic 60s gift to American Judaism in a way. Do you think that, uh, I mean, do you think that there is a kind of through line there and there's a, a useful place for psychedelics in Judaism? I think that without a doubt, Reb Zalman, my teacher, was influenced by the 60s and by the dropping out and dropping in and, and his experiences uh, using, you know, I call them psychedelics, call them, you know, medicines, calling, you know, various, various um, ways of achieving alternate, alternate states of consciousness. I think that Reb Zalman's great contribution to both, I get Jewish history and more locally North American Jewish history was Reb Zalman's willingness to integrate mystical Judaism into a progressive context. I think up to the point where Reb Zalman emerged, mysticism was seen either as an affirmation of a pre-modern fundamentalist approach to, to Jew religious life on the one hand, or seen as a quixotic, a kind of very regressive, almost embarrassing element of the Jewish religious phenomenon. And when Rosalman emerged from the Chabad school of Hasidism, um, with his incredibly open-hearted and courageous willingness to go to different places, both ecumenically and other religious traditions, and even um, with psychedelics, Rosalman essentially said, it's possible to be a mystic who's been exposed and has seen alternate states of reality, and then to come back into a tradition and still be progressive and liberal and fully egalitarian and, you know, and so on going forward. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, Rav Zalman was very influenced by psychedelics. Rav Zalman's first question when he met me was, had I dropped acid or had I done any psychedelics? So Rav Zalman, you know, for Rav Zalman, these medicines were windows into what the ancient texts were pointing to, um, whether they themselves had used psychedelics or had come to it in more, I guess, uh, traditional or more or non, you know, psychedelic practices. That's a question. But for sure, Reb Zalman was very influenced by that. And to your second question, yes, I think that there's a, a place for for these for these. Uh, for psychedelics and for other medicines in within Jewish life, because you know within a healthy and supportive environment, they give you a direct experience of a lot of the things that the traditions themselves are built upon. I I often say that religion is a burp after the meal. 
That's a very gross way of saying that the meal is a mystical experience, and often religious law and religious ritual is is just trying to either bring us back to that original primal place or um, maintain it in some way. And so uh, the vistas that we that we see when we have these experiences are are I think what the texts are pointing towards and can have tremendously tremendously powerful uh, and transformative. Um, potential in, in, a, in, in spiritual life. You said that he asked you, the first question he asked you was if, if you had ever done psychedelics. And I, I, so I, I must uh, follow, up that, follow up that question with uh, asking you as well. Yes. You know. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, you know, I think that, again, it's like for me, um, my own religious and spiritual journey was a combination of um, both meditative absorption practices deep prayer practice and and glimpses through these these you know this experience these these experiences these these um um i don't want to use the term that's often used through psychedelics or through medicinal and herbal um uh doors sure uh, towards perception that was uh i think a deeper and more robust experience of what people call reality yeah so i think that by nature, you know, um, it, what can happen in those states um, can take a practitioner of meditation and other practices years to to try to see, and I, it can open up in in such profound ways the spiritual center that each of us I think has. So the answer to that was, of course, to Rabzalman was yes. Sure. And the answer to me is. Um, you know, not everyone, right? Not everyone will will, will be amenable or even interested in in, in using these uh, in these using these aids um, or these gifts. They're really gifts. It's kind of a funny thing, to, like really a gift that we've been given. You know, um, which is unfortunate in a way because it, it can it can it can change your life. And, and it changed my life. It changed Rabzama's life. It changes people's lives. I mean, you talked about sort of the. I guess some of the forms of uh, ecstatic dancing that that you encourage and, and and meditation and things like that and and that the idea that in a way that these gifts um, uh, or tools or this medicine it's almost a shortcut in a way to to getting to that state that sort of altered state of um, euphoria. I mean, do you think that the and do you think that the two states are similar or, or related or, or different? I think the hackneyed phrase and, and approach is often something to the, to the effect of, well, one is hard-earned and the other is a shortcut, or one is longer-lasting and the other one is, is short-term, and one is a state and the other you know, creates a stage, and to use some, some language I've seen used in, in mystical literature, that repeated state exposure can, can often induce a more permanent acquisition of that state in, in a stage. I think that there are some theoreticians that speak that way. And I, I think that the, journey, the, the jury's out. I think that I'm not convinced in that hierarchy. Um, I do think that there's something extremely powerful about being able to, to state change using meditative and contemplative practices. Um, I think it's just something you have with you at, at all moments is your breath, your body, and your own internal rhythms. Um, and that that is a very powerful 
I think it's just that is a time-honored way in some ways, but I'm not altogether sure that I want to set them up in tension or in in hierarchy. I think that they're both pathways, and the relationship between them is it can be interwoven very beautifully, um, and they augment each other and can support each other and supplement each other. Um, yeah, so I'm not, you know, again, I think these are all technologies and how they work together are are is the art of it, the art of enlightenment. Over the years, 20 some odd years of contemplative and more, uh, I guess, even ecstatic and contemplative practices, for me personally, um, usually those those states are non, don't have a visual component to them. Like when I sit for long periods of meditation uh, in meditation, meditative absorption, or even for 20 minutes before a prayer service, I know my state changes, but it doesn't have, um, it, it doesn't have quite the color as it were <laughs> sure uh, and it doesn't have quite the um the the insights into kind of ontological insight if i can say it that way like i don't have like it, it, like you know these deep grokking of what it's all about <laughs> you know i don't i don't come back with deep visions that i have to write down but what, what, what i will drop into is it more of a of a, a quiet place a place where, where moment to moment, what is arising in my consciousness is more visible to me. Um, I'm certainly not in the discursive mind. The mind gets very, very quiet and very soft. And it's a very different state. It's still beautiful. And it's still also, um, it's profound in its own way. But it's, it's different. Yeah. Uh, and but it's but again different different flavors and different moments. I think the way that I feel after I've danced ecstatically for an hour is also very different than when I've sat in meditation. Each one is like a different cross training of the spirit. Some of these tools are are also or can be used to sort of enhance the the connection to uh, you know the mysticism or the you know, and absolutely and discover you know things in the uh, b- behind Jewish texts and things like that absolutely like the biblical you know there are texts in the book of deuteronomy that where moses in the text says to the people of israel you saw with your own eyes that day that god appeared on sinai now who knows what happened there but what he's talking to and speaking about is this deep sense that once you had an experience of that reality it's it's there it stays and and everything else becomes a kind of the embers of, are, are like ignited and all you have to do is blow on them and they're there again. And that that's that's my experience. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's uh, you know, now that you have brought up Moses, uh, I have uh, heard and read this theory postulated that Moses was actually tripping on some sort of psychedelic when he saw the burning bush. Do you do you uh, do you have any feeling about that one way or the other? <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, I know at Pinchbeck and I have other people who's like, yeah, could be, you know, I, I love it. Why not? Um, certainly, I can't imagine that a great spiritual personality at that period in history was not exposed to medicines in various forms. So, yeah, I mean, it looks like a trip to me. But again, you know, who knows? Right. I, I don't know. I, I'd love to imagine that... Um, that all 600,000 Israelites, men, it was about 3 million altogether, who purportedly stood at Mount Sinai and saw, you know, what is usually 
spoken and, and heard what is usually seen. They had a kind of synesthetic synesthesia going on that all of them had kind of, there was like a, you know, a big pit stop along the way at the, the Reed Sea and they picked up some Kool-Aid and they were just, <laughs> who knows? Yeah. It was, uh, it was the first Coachella, really. <laughs> <In a way>. Exactly. <laughs> or Burning Man. I guess it would be the first Burning Man. Man, yeah, be Burning better. Burning Bush, Burning Man. Yeah, exactly. And what about the, uh, I had read that there was a Passover Seder that, that used, uh, that was using marijuana in place of the wine. Was that, was that a Romemu thing or was that, was that prior to you? No, it wasn't a Romemu thing, but, um, yeah, these are the circles. I mean, it was on the circles. These are the circles. I mean, mm-hmm. essentially there are a number of, there are a number of events throughout the Jewish calendar. Well, actually not a number, but two events in particular, which call for explicitly call for intoxication um, to a, to a state of of, of non duality maybe would be a good way to, to frame it. Um, Purim, the holiday of Purim, which is a kind of Jewish Mardi Gras, you know, is a kind of Jewish Mardi Gras where there is a religious obligation to get drunk um, on that evening. It's a, it's a it's an event that that is based upon, loosely based upon a historic uh, or claimed historical event where the Jews of Iran or Persia at the time were in danger of being killed in, in a very topsy-turvy way. They themselves became the victors instead of the victims. And it's kind of a whole, you know, and it becomes an event in, in, in Judaism, which is, um, which is distinguished by its use of masks and, and upheavals and turnarounds. Kind of a very almost burlesque like um, event. Yeah, and it's and people get drunk basically. And in years over the last, you know, during the counterculture, people instead of getting drunk to a place where the, the Talmud or the tradition says get drunk until you don't know the difference between a the holy man Mordechai and the evil man Haman. Like that's how altered your state should be, which is essentially non-duality. And there are a lot of Hasidic texts about the non-dual nature of Purim. So people get stoned instead, or they'll drop acid, or they'll kind of have an altered state. And so there are a lot of stories about that. And then there's Passover, which takes place a month later, which you're supposed to have like four cups of wine um, in honor of freedom, and people have used other medicines to get there and kind of really get free. My Rebbe, Reb Zalman, was, you know, a big fan of doing whatever it takes to be able to have a glimpse of, of the divine. And I think ultimately what Rav Zalman was saying, and I think that I'm saying it too, and you are too, is that that glimpse, that window, can can completely reorient and recenter us in the most healthy way in a universe where we are often feel adrift, and that that heals. Like it's not just this isn't just you know for entertainment or for for um, for the for the sake of. Of recreation. I mean, although it is, it's also for recreation, right? It's really, really, it's it's a it's medicine for the soul. So I want to bless bless you and bless those who engage in this work to bring more awareness of of that alternate healing reality and, and bring it into the present. Well, yeah, I really and I I, I like that a lot. The, the idea of recreation versus recreation. That's great. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to kibitz with me. All right, kibitzing is good, right, Dad? <laughs> okay, take care. You too, man. Okay. Have a good one. All right. Oh, I, I haven't done acid that much. I've done it like twice, but the f- first time I did it, I came down, and I was like, "Oh, I get it. 
we are one. Like I totally had that feeling of understanding that we we're all connected and everything. It was kind of a, has it stuck with you? No, we're not all one. Do you remember it though? I mean, I there was a guy on the tube the other day. I'm not one with that man. <laughs> I'm not one with that man. I'm definitely not one with him. <laughs> Um, All right. Listeners, have you had a religious experience on drugs? An interesting one. We don't want to have to remind you. Don't send us your boring stories if you want us to read it. A juicy... Religious drug experience. Uh, Do you think there's a connection between psychedelics and spirituality? Please email us at kibitzpod at gmail.com. K-I-B-I-T-Z-P-O-D at gmail.com. And let us know what you think. We'll read answers on a future... We'll read interesting answers yeah we'll read interesting responses sure they're not answers well they're we're res- all just searching for answers we're all searching that's what uh, we're all searching on a future episode and that is it for this episode of the kibitz thanks to our guests rabbi david ingber rick doblin and of course the fabulous moshe kasher we love moshe kasher if you like the episode please review us on itunes tell your friends tweet us at kibitz pod um, a little facebook mention wouldn't kill you this episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane. Special thanks to my co-host, Jessica Chaffin. Ta-da! David Katz-Nelson for providing the groovy Hebrew tunes, as well yeah, as... Yeah, man! Yeah, dude! As well as Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, David Jaragowski, Francine Hermelin, and Reboot. Our main theme is courtesy of Nu Non Plus. And as my great-grandmother used to say... That's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening to, to The, the Kibitz. Peace out, bro. Yeah. yeah. That's me exhaling the smoke from earlier in the episode. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode and want to keep hearing more from the kibitz, please consider making a charitable, tax-deductible donation to Reboot, the Jewish nonprofit organization behind the kibitz at rally.org slash reboot.